Good morning. I want to welcome everybody uh, to the morning session here on embolization at uh, Friday of ISED. Really pleasure to have everybody here. We have a great panel here. We're going to be talking about embolization strategies and the techniques. Uh, it's really going to be a case-based session in the treatment of hemorrhage. And we have a great uh, panel here. My name is Rupal Gandhi. I'm here from Miami, Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute. Uh, we have Gloria Salazar from Massachusetts General Hospital, Zeev Haskell from uh, University of Virginia, and uh, Jafar Gozarian from University of Minnesota. And it's really a pleasure to have uh, such a distinguished panel here. And we really want to thank uh, Medtronic for an educational grant uh, to support this session. So learning objectives, we're really going to be talking about uh, bleeds, specifically you know, gastrointestinal bleeds as well as uh, traumatic bleeds. And we'll talk about different strategies, different embolization strategies, pros, cons of different techniques um, when we're utilizing, um, when we're doing embolization for different various vascular beds, as well as management of challenging cases and complications. So I'm going to start with an introduction with the basic overview, and then we'll launch into the cases. We have uh, f four good cases, and depending on how much time we have, uh, I have a fifth case as well, uh, more of an M&M type of case. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, try to make this as interactive as possible. If anybody has questions, you know, we don't have a ton of time for questions, but uh, we definitely probably will have some time for questions. If there's any questions, definitely feel free to chime in and ask questions, and we could try to uh, answer them as we move along. Uh, these are my disclosures. So just as a general overview, clearly, you know, the management of hemorrhage can be uh, extremely challenging as these patients often have significant uh, comorbidities, and uh, you know, sometimes these hemorrhages can result in mortality as well. While surgery certainly has a role in some cases, you know, in many cases, really embolization has supplanted uh, the role of uh, surgery. And embolotherapy these days has really become the mainstay of therapy for you know, various types of bleeding conditions. A few clinical important um, pearls that I want to go through, uh, and some of these are obvious, some of them, some of them you know, may not be as obvious, but Clearly, you want to correct coagulopathy, especially in patients who might be on um, any anticoagulant therapy or maybe they have coagulopathy secondary to their bleeding. Um, often, just correcting the coagulopathy alone is good enough to stop the bleeding. When we, do, when we are considering embolization therapy, it's often important to embolize early before the patient actually develops coagulopathy. Otherwise, you know, it can be hard to actually control the bleeding. And most of the embolic agents, not, although not all of them, do require an intact coagulation cascade. Although, you know, some of the plugs with PTFE, such as the microvascular plug, some of the liquid embolics, uh, you can utilize even in the setting of coagulopathy, and they can be effective. Early intervention has been shown to improve outcomes. So, you know, if you're considering it, if it's valid and uh, necessary for the patient, it's something you want to consider. We typically will perform CT angiography for most of our patients, although not all of them, as it can be extremely valuable in localizing the site of the bleeding as well as saving contrast and time during the actual procedure itself. Clearly, you want to understand anatomic variants. You know, common examples, middle colic arising from a celiac for a GI bleed or a corona mortis in the setting of, uh, you know, pelvic hemorrhage. Uh, can, uh, you know, knowledge of this vessel can be life-saving <coughs> traumatic bleed. Um, there is going to be some cases, especially patients who are, you know, really bleeding to death where non-selective embolization might be necessary to actually save their lives. And these are patients where you're not going to go selective to try to find the little branch that might be bleeding. Or there might be multiple sites that are bleeding, and proximal embolization um, may be very effective there. We do want to consider empiric embolization in the absence of GI bleeding uh, in organs where 
you know, end organ ischemia is not necessarily problems such as, you know, upper GI bleeding, pelvic hemorrhage, as well as postpartum hemorrhage. Of course, always, always remember backdoor supply in patients who have dual, in, in any organ that has a dual organ, a dual arterial supply. Uh, when utilizing coils uh, for coil embolization, especially for visceral aneurysms, if that's the site of the bleeding, you know, coil packing density can be extremely important. And if you don't maintain a sufficient coil packing density, you could have recanalization and uh, repeat hemorrhage. Uh, liquid embolics can, be, can have a uh, significant role, especially if patients are coagulopathy and endoscopic market, marking can be valuable, especially in localizing GI bleeds the patient has had prior endoscopy. Just other additional technical tips, you know, obviously know your embolic agents, know their characteristics. Always use a stable base catheter, and depending on what embolic you're utilizing, a microcatheter if it is compatible. You know, really understand the sizing as every coil plug has different sizing, and, you know, your specific coil might not necessarily be compatible with the specific catheter that you're using if you don't really understand that. Um, other than, you know, really understanding your coils, you know, you know, steel versus platinum coils, this really mostly refers to uh, pushable coils. The steel coils tend to allow for, uh, they tend to be stiffer and allow for a backstop. Platinum coils are a little bit softer, but, you know, a lot of us uh, these days use a lot of detachable coils as it really allows us for very good control and precise positioning. Uh, plugs can be extremely valuable as they can often result in immediate occlusion with a single device, decreasing the number of embolic devices that you're utilizing. Liquid embolics understand the microcatheter compatibility and how to actually utilize it, understand the flow dynamics, and it's good to practice utilizing uh, this embolic agent if you're not comfortable with it and maybe safer vascular beds before utilizing it in more complex. Then gel foam, it's been around for a long time, but it's still you know, a mainstay of therapy for a lot of types of bleeding. So I'm gonna um, launch in the first case. The first case is a relatively straightforward case, a relatively straightforward case, and then we're gonna get into you know, a lot of really interesting cases from the panel here. So, so this is a patient with alcoholism um, and presented with a, a massive upper GI bleed. Um, they, our endoscopist tried to go in and the patient was just full of blood. Hemoglobin had dropped from 12 to about four. Patient was hypotensive, tachycardic. So uh, this patient actually did not end up having a CT angiogram as the patient just really wasn't that stable to even go there. Basically was brought straight from endoscopy to our interventional suite. So here, here's an angiography here, and you can see that, um, that there is, I don't know if I could, this light really work, projects well here, but you can see that there's clearly inside of bleeding here, you know, near the gastroduodenal artery, you know, open up to the panel here, you know, how would you approach a patient like this? You know, it's something that we see very commonly. So basically selective catheterization and um, just do as quick as possible. I mean, the patient is actually bleeding, and I think there's some uh, vessel constriction there from the active extravasation, active bleeding. Um, so I guess you have to think about that before you go in. It would be helpful to have imaging uh, beforehand, but. Absolutely, absolutely. Let me, let me show you the next image. This is where we actually got a microcatheter actually into the actual site of bleeding. Um, Ziv, uh, how would you approach this? Do you have a specific embolic agent that you would favor in a situation like this? Backing up to where uh, um, Dr. Salvar, Salazar was, the striking thing is how vasoconstricted that yes. is. This patient is bleeding to death on the table. And I don't doubt that when you'll show us the final picture, it'll look like a completely different vascular system, which means we need to be able to get into it, embolize for what it is now as quickly as possible, 
and something that will obviate the need for him being able to coagulate. You've told us he's alcoholic, he's bleeding, he's going to, if he isn't now in DIC, he will be potentially in a few days, so that agent has to both pack the vessel now and pack it for when it's its normal size and pack it for when he might develop a coagulopathy later. So it's almost a, I'm thinking sort of three steps and quickly. Uh, and then it's whatever axe you have that is your favorite axe at that moment to get into that. And one of the things that, you know, we certainly encountered in patients like this that are vasoconstricted is, especially when we're utilizing things such as coils or plugs, we're not exactly sure what size to utilize because we have seen cases, even, even in patients who aren't coagulopathic, where you don't place the right, you, you place, place the right size at the time. However, when the patient, you know, is, you know, no longer hypotensive and their vessels become normal size, they actually, they actually re-bleed. So and, and even the rarest situation where with a very big rent, the coil will extrude into the gut. So there are a lot of these considerations, Rand. Jafar, uh, a specific emb embolic agent you would utilize here? So um, I think in those situations, first of all, as um, you know, the best thing is to do uh, front door, back door. So as you know, this is a rich area of communication. And so I would try to pass the, uh, the bleeding side coil and come back and then combination of coil particle or coil gel form. However, when you are in this situation, you don't see any collateral, uh, bad collateral going to do the num right now. I think using glue in this situation is really a good idea because of the coagulopathy. But because I am not really a liquid person, I have tried to master the combination of coils and gel form or coils and particles. And so, but the message is that uh, to all the things that we have heard is to do back door, front door. Absolutely. You know, then that's typically the approach that we would utilize here. I'd, actually, typically, we don't actually get into the bleeding side. This happened to be a situation where the wire just happened to go directly into the bleeding side. So we placed a microcatheter here, and while it was here, placed a few coils. And then this is a subsequent angiogram. And, you know, you know there's definitely, you know, some bleeding around it, and, and not surprising. Um, so basically, you know, you're talking about, you know, what you just said, you know, front door, back door, you know, typically our strategy here. So in this, in this situation, which I didn't mention before, uh, was coagulopathic. So, you know, we were thinking along, you know, all those things, you know, and even if the patient wasn't coagulopathic, we always think about, hey, is this patient going to develop DIC later or become coagulopathic? So in this situation, we, we chose to utilize uh, a microvascular plug, uh, which has PTFE covering was placed distally, you know, just a distal, you know, or the back door to this uh, bleeding site in the GDA. And then subsequently, and, and then a very nice thing about that, if you're not uh, used to utilizing this device, is you can actually do an angiogram through the microcatheter with the embolic plug in place and not deployed, which is, which I think is a very valuable feature of this plug. But the PTFE covering is nice. It resulted in immediate occlusion of the vessel. And then a second microvascular plug here was placed. And Right now, this angiogram is being done um, with, with the uh, microcatheter still attached to the plug, um, which, again, is, is super and You've valid. nicely shown the risk of just believing that a coil alone would do the job, which it hasn't, because it's flowing right through it until you had that PTFE-covered plug on the front and the back end. And gel foam, I think, would equally be a mistake here because, yes, we can mix it through a microcatheter, but half of it is air anyways at that point in such a small aliquot that wouldn't be dependable. But here you've got a solid wall-to-wall uh, -wall seal, front and back. No, and and that, I think that is a value here. I do like the liquid embolic uh, as well as a, as a good strategy. One of the things that you know, I definitely struggle with this is 
know what size to utilize because de definitely the patient was very vasoconstricted. So we decided to go with the larger uh, diameter, but still there was concern. What happened if this GDA was really a six millimeter vessel um, and we just didn't know it? Um, but this is the, you know, the immediate um, post, uh, uh, post embolization angiogram with occlusion of the vessel, and actually the patient actually did, uh, did well. So again, very valuable in coagulopathic patients. Just given the uh, sake of time here, I'm going to actually move on to uh, the next presentation uh, for Dr. Salzer. Thank you. So this is a case that obviously never happens uh, during the day, and this is not my disclosure. And uh, of course, uh, you're always like having to um, act uh, on the scene very quickly and, and trying to figure out what to do. So this is a 88-year-old female with AFib, cardiac heart failure, statutose cabbage, and Coumadin, of course. I don't think any of those patients present without any anticoagulation on board. And she presented with three days of melanotic stools that progressed to vomiting by red blood. And this was all an outside hospital uh, close to uh, Boston. And, um, and then the labs were clearly a drop in the crit and INR of 2.6. So she started transfusing, um, they started transfusing her with uh, red blood cells, FFP, reversing the anticoagulation or the um, uh, anticoagulant effect. And then she also had an EGD in outside the hospital showing lesion in a wall. And there was concern for pseudoneurism versus aneurysm versus intramural hematoma. And so at this point, this patient uh, actually has a CTA done, which I think is extremely helpful. And thankfully, I think it's, um, this tool is being utilized more and more. And um, I know, we know clinically the patient is bleeding, but we want to know where. And again, it's um, just to take all the technical factors in consideration before you go in and have the better outcome for the patient. So you can see here there's uh, pseudoneurism, pulling of blood, like in the territory of GDA is huge. Um, and also you can see this patient has heavily calcified uh, aorta, and so you're already expecting what you're going to see here in the procedure. And again, um, as was mentioned earlier, those patients have significant comorbidities as well. So this also plays a role in the in your planning of the procedure and how is this going to turn out. So a little bit about visceral arterial pseudoneurism or aneurysms. It's, um, there's different locations so that you can find them. Mostly it's an incidental in aging population. So this is an 80-something-year-old woman uh, in about 40% of patients, most commonly secondary pancreatitis and hepatobiliary surgery, vasculitis, and inflammatory processes. The issue is that obviously we have massive GI bleed with about 40% mortality. In, nowadays, it's more likely that those patients are going to be treated endovascular given the urgency. And it's always very helpful to have a multidisciplinary approach. I think in our hospital, we never would take a patient like this without having surgery on board just to make sure you know we are uh, treating this patient with the best uh, uh, team that we can have at the time. And so here's the first run, and of course you always end up being in the vessel that you don't need to be, and you just take that, and it's helpful because it's SMA run just showing you the, um, uh, the uh, variation in the hepatic artery takeoff. Um, and also it's showing you other things that you can already appreciate uh, from a technical perspective, the tortuosity of the aorta. Can, can you go back to the sure. what, what is that? Word? What was going on in the liver? liver yeah. I know. I'm glad that you asked, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> but um, here, let me just hold oh, on. One more. Here we go. Yeah, there's a, there's a lesion in the liver. We were looking at that, um, and 
we don't know what it is. But you know, it wasn't it, it. We didn't go back into that. I don't know. Maybe she has some hypervascular. Yeah, I think I think yeah. We didn't go back and look into it, but I knew you were going to ask that question. Good, good eyes. In the middle of the night, this is what you see. And again, this is in the middle of the night. So this is the the the, the lesion here, and you can see the variant anatomy again, the GDA and splenic. And um, yes, you can see very well this bilobulated um, pseudoneurysm arising from the GDA branches a little bit distal. And, and, and again, the ideal situation here is, is to go and pass that distal. And everything looks great in here, but when you're really like getting an advance in the microcatheter, you really have to you know, be strategic about how do you approach this. Now, at this point, uh, you need to stop and look at the anatomy, as I mentioned. What is next? So again, there's no shortcuts. Even if you're in the middle of the night with this patient, you really need to think strategically about what's going to be the safer way of doing this. And given the tertiary of the aorta, I decided let's just place a long sheet to secure our access because I don't know how this one I'm going to be able to get there, and I don't want to be messing around with this patient who is actively bleeding on my table. So I'm glad I did that, and I'll and I'll show you why. And, and, uh, so let me stop there for a second. You know, one one of the things that you know we definitely encounter in a situation like this especially, you know, sometimes in challenging visceral aneurysms are, we talk about a front door, back door approach, but sometimes it's hard or impossible to actually get to the back door. So maybe open it up, you know, you know, Jafar, I mean, in a situation like that, you, you, you spend a lot of time and you just can't get to the back door. What, what, do you, what do you do in that situation? So honestly, I think uh, all depends on the territory and what are the organ at risk, and then what is the uh, patient risk. You know, if the patient is a little more stable, you can take your time, you can embolize what you can embolize and make sure that you can go back to the uh, other artery, especially in some situation, you can go back through the uh, mesenteric artery. But when I was referring to a combination, is sometimes is, we call it a sandwich technique. So you can go uh, put a coil, or put a particle, put a coil after, and particle and coil after. So sometimes the combination technique is important, but I think most people now uh, try, the trend is that in a situation where you can't really pass the, uh, the lesion, you can use, again, liquid embolism. Yeah, I, I think those are very good points. So these are all considerations when you're walking in a case like this, and of course you wanna really pray to get distal, and, and that's it, you're done, and then you do the whole thing, but it's not as easy. And in this particular case, again, the secure access, I think, is key for you to be able to, <clears throat> to get there. And so this is a nice slide um, showing different techniques of how to treat pseudoneurysms. And of course, depending on the type of artery, if it's like an expendable or an expendable uh, artery that you're dealing with. In this case, we do have extensive collateral supply in the, in the GDA. So the approach, as all of us mentioned before, proximal disembolization. Is the preferred acts is the preferred uh, way of going here, and here's another sort of type of algorithm. Again, you know, high collateral circulation and an expendable donor artery. You're going to go proximal distal. If there's no collateral, then definitely proximal, um, and all sorts of different categories for different presentations. And so there's always a discussion, and the fellows always ask me like, what do we do with the pseudoneurysm sac, and should we coil? Should we do? And there's always this, you know fear of getting there and, and really like what we know is that, you know, some uh, papers and, and experience show that can, uh, the neurismal neck alone can spare blood flow in the parent artery, infusion of the embolization material may induce rupture. So I think this scares a lot of us. It never happened to me. 
and hopefully it doesn't happen tomorrow and I go back on call just because I said that. You mean the rupture of PS, uh, soda aneurysm during the procedure? During, the, yeah. That happens all the time to me. This is what I'm saying. This is why we need to discuss all of this. There are cases where you put coils in, you know, the, the pseudo aneurysm was maybe two centimeters. Now it's two and a half. Now it's three centimeters and now all of a sudden you see extra. Yes. Yeah, that's a well-described event, but, and, and, but it also leads to sort of the dogma that I think we're all talking about, which is there's a dogma which is you should not embolize the inside of a pseudoaneurysm, and that's sort of said as if it's a fixed answer. But in fact, that's not true all the time, and we probably all do it and don't realize it. And then there's the other side, which is you can do it any time you want, and you have the non-mycotic pseudoaneurysm that will still grow like that, whether it's off the aorta or otherwise. So I think it really is a game-time decision as to what's the most expedient and durable like in your first case. And I think we're going to see it when you show us the ultra-close situation mm -hmm. as to whether we're going to fill it with a liquid or a coil or what, right? Right. But certainly, I mean, if you're starting to embolize the, the sac, you're going to have an increased risk of migration of, of materials because it's, it's a tortoise and the pressure and et cetera. So I'm glad I didn't talk to you, Dr. Gozarian, before my, you know, that, because I never had the rupture, but you never know. These are a couple of guidelines, and again, talking surgical and um, endovascular. Nowadays, in the emergency setting, endovascular approach is preferred, uh, and coil embolization is the most used technique. I think everybody. Can I, can I ask you about sure. this, uh, these guidelines that are as open up the panel? So in, interestingly here, it says, looking at this 5S, in asymptomatic mesenteric interventions may be considered for patients with pancreatic odudinal, which I would agree with, but it also says hepatic arteries. Um, I'm just curious, uh, Ziv, you know, what size hepatic aneurysm in an asymptomatic patient would you treat? Um, we're never, we're never going to have the um, evidence base that we think we have for splenic arteries that allows us to sort of say two centimeters or smaller and growing in women who may be pregnant or getting pregnant, which even, which is shaky ground as well. So we basically are kind of extrapolating from one to the other and saying two centimeters. But I mean, I personally will treat. Um, uh, I mean, bleeding hepatic aneurysm, pseudoaneurysm doesn't matter what size, but Anything that is larger than normal vessel that is reachable, it's a, it's a supply that can handle a proximal ligation. Livers don't infarct with a proximal ligation. That's what surgery is. So accessible, visible. So, so you don't have a specific size threshold. You know, we have, you know, obviously a different disease entity, but we've seen patients with segmental arterial medialysis with multiple aneurysms, and sometimes you can't go in there and embolize every single one. Or it's very challenging. Where we and some may this. actually reverse with yeah. treatment and disappear as well. So you're right. There's a kind of there is a, a necessary conservative course. What do I use the eye test or or yeah, how that, do you decide? That, that's you know it's it's bigger it's a than this. That always right? comes up, and we we, we, we debate it internally. And again, we don't have strong data to drive. Um, you know. Just quickly on that. Um, so the data is extrapolated from surgical data. So we know that if you follow up a patient that has 15 millimeter aneurysm, you can follow them for years and they may not move. But what, what I think you need to look at is the risk factor. So I think, first of all, for the renal, I don't care the size. The risk is mostly uh, uh, renal thrombosis, so the rupture is not that much important. But for the other area, uh, what is important is really if the patient is a, a portal hypertension patient is a patient is a young patient who wants to have babies. All of this that comes into account. But if you have none of these and patient has no symptoms, 
I still uh, stick to the two centimeters. Perfect, perfect. Given the time constraints, I'm going to let you. So this is what I had as a plan. Um, I would go uh, packing up the coil, uh, have a stable access, and so do front and back door and get distal, and hopefully I can get distal as soon as possible. So, <clears throat> so this is me trying to get into the distal portion of this pseudoneurism. It's quite difficult because it's rich collateral supply, which vessel we're going into. So it looks like it's easy, but it's not. So you have to do different projections. This is the best projection we found, and again, you can appreciate the irregularity of the artery and, and you know, some vasoconstriction and what sizing or whatnot. So at that point, we move on to go distally, and I was so happy with this, and I'm like, too happy, perhaps. This is much better than what it seemed from the non-selective one. You actually totally. have continuity of the gastropiploic artery. But it took me a couple of projections and, you know, yeah. to do that. So, but again, you know, this is what we do with GDA, and, and here's my microcatheter distal to the ear, and I was like, pretty good until this. It's a great video you captured. And so I'm <laughs> like, shake it off, huh? I'm yeah. like, you know, I'm glad that I use a coil that is detachable. Detachable, first of all. I'm also glad that I do I did the long sheath because then even if I had to pull it off, I'm still there. But obviously, as you can see, I closed the distal end of, uh, of the, the, the back door, and now I'm like, okay, what do I do with this coil? And then my fellow's like, Dr. Salazar, Dr. Salazar, I'm like, don't panic, let's just take it out. And so we did, and everything was fine, but it's a nice video, yes. So, the, so then I couldn't get back to where I was, uh, and I expected that, so, and then I get into the neurismal sac. And I think that's a, the first case you showed. If you get there, then you do something. I mean, you're not, I mean if you try to go back and look at, into the distal portion, you may be in trouble. So I did pack, the, uh, not very highly packed, but did pack, and at this point, this, the axis was a little bit unstable. So we did that, and you know, I felt pretty good about, and at that point I was like, should I use liquid, should I use gel foam, because I'm not trying, I have some skip parts here, and I wanna you know, have collateralization. So anyway, so I decided, okay, there's no, not a lot of flow, there's some contrast sitting there, and then I did the proximal uh, embolization. I wanted to make sure to preserve other branches, and every time you can see like the super duodenal branches there, and that was sort of my uh, final thing after the scare of having a coil almost uh, migrating in another place. And this is my final run. And at that point, the patient already like started to become stable. She's still alive. Actually, this case happened a couple of years ago. She's still alive. And she was discharged two days after angel. It was a really good case. And, you know, just, um, you know, you can have the sandwich technique, which we call the isolation technique. And the clinical success of closing a vessel in the GDA is about 89. And the touchable coils used in the procedure provide better control. And this is well known. I mean, we all know this for GDA, not even in, even in the elective setting, we're going to do detachable coils. So for me, in this case, teaching points, stable and secure access, when you see tortuosity, you never know what can happen in the middle of the case. Selective catheterization of GDA. In this case, you could see the bleed, but sometimes you can't, and then you really have to get selective. And more importantly is to use the detachable coils in this setting if you're having tortuosity. And the PSA embolization technique, front to back door always, packing of pseudoneurism, more or less, uh, plus or minus, depending on the size. And most importantly, recognize and treat your complications and choose your equipment wisely. You never know when you can get in trouble. This one was a near miss for me, and you know, I always thought that I could show this case, and here I am. Thank you very much. This is a great case. Um, move on to uh, Dr. Haskell's case. So I've gone in a bit of a different direction, uh, just to provide some variety. 
um, in the sense that this is an M&M case. So here's the story. 49-year-old man with a iatrogenic right subclavian artery injury from a temporary dialysis catheter was placed in the medical intensive care unit. So we get called um, because the neck is getting bigger. There's uh, some uh, uh, extravascular contrast that you can see on the CT scan as well as that uh, daring little stripe there in the hematoma. He's still breathing fine and talking fine and um, we're gearing up to do some subclavian angiography and some sort of embolization around this area. A little bit of background. He's got a history of vasculitis, acute kidney injury. He's had months of uh, upper extremity weakness. He had a perinephric bleed, or hematoma at least, a few years ago. Surgical history of small bowel repair for perforation, bleeding at colonoscopy, vasculitis, and his creatinine is 2.8 now. So sick man transferred in from this outside hospital, and we get called because of his hypotension. He's, get, he's gotten two units of blood. His blood pressure has come up a bit. He's now on midodrine, and he has intermittent use of pressors, levofit and also albumin. So um, his acute kidney injury is worsening. The dialysis catheter is placed just before noon on day two at the ICU, 11.49 a.m., uh, the physician who placed it, a fellow in pulmonology, reported that he used ultrasound. We'll show you the hematoma there. Expanded around there. And at 7.30 p.m., so that's about eight hours later, he gets the CTA, which shows the bleed, which to me looked like it came off the proximal subclavian artery. We know that there are a lot of thyrocervical and other branches around there. And the hematoma, depending on how you want to measure it, is six by 11 centimeters. So I got consulted at 8 p.m. Fellow was in there before 9 p.m. We don't keep someone on site, so he drove in, saw him on the floor, wrote his note by then, and we had arterial access at 10.30 p.m. on the table down with the ICU. Uh, I had spoken to hand surgeons because of uh, swelling in his arm as to whether or not he needed a fasciotomy or not. We put that away. We talked about compartment syndrome as well, thought about potentially having to treat the vein and uh, the rest, made sure that, in fact, he was speaking to us. We could do this with uh, moderate sedation as he was. Um, and he was stable when he arrived. So who do we have? This is probably typical for many of you. The IR attending, the fellow. We have two technologists, and we have the MICU nurse, who's the person who staffs our uh, ICU cases. So here's the case. Right subclavian artery aneurysm. I'm sorry, right subclavian artery extravasation. Um, that's the extravasation. There it is hidden behind. Classic situation where you're wondering what's going to happen with the vert. We had already looked at it. I talked to our neuroperson and said, if you have to take it out, take it out. Figured that out. But I'd like to not, if necessary. And my hope was that there was a branch that could actually enter and embolize and be done with. It was a difficult catheterization and a difficult arch. And like uh, Gloria had shown, um, sheaths involved, and you can see the example of the difficulties. I show you the subtraction and recoil of the Simmons catheter in the angiogram, actually in the DSA. So it takes a lot to kick a Simmons back. Just, so. just as an important uh, anatomic point, you know, one thing you obviously want to exclude is a vert ending in pica. Um, I'm sure you shot a vertebral angiogram or had a CTA beforehand, but I think that's when we're doing any of these types of interventions, or you're doing, you know, covering a vert for you know thoracic endograft. It's a something you would definitely want to look out for. Perfect. So, as they say in the movies, sometime later, 
Um, and you can see the sense of difficulty. There's a buddy wire, of, a V18 buddy wire, a sheath alongside. We're up in this vessel and some very nicely packing coils. These really are my go-to coils for these uh, floppy small vessels where they just kind of push in without much um, complaint. I've taken that down, and there's still some bleeding around here. So the question is whether we're going to have to lay that stent graft and otherwise or something else. So my hope of isolating it by embolization and sparing the presumed non-dominant vert was falling away. Um, the MICU nurse informs us that he's hypotensive. She's added a presser, having talked with the off-site uh, resident. Uh, he's getting levofid. He's hypotensive. He's getting vasoconstricted. Um, his brachial artery is now relatively small. It was small to begin with because of the pressors as well. I called uh, my vascular surgery colleague for a potential brachial cutdown uh, in order to uh, get a stent graft into place. The whole OR team arrives very quickly, and we have a whole crew and trays, et cetera, in our, in our room. Um, I've got a, an occlusion balloon sitting across it at this point, and at this point, we're concerned enough that we're saying, we're just going to stent graft from the groin. Let's just do it and forget the cutdown. So you get some heparin. I deploy a balloon expandable stent graft. At 1.49 a.m., the case ends. Um, you can see the final image over here. Um, nothing left. No bleeding seen over there. He's transferred, not intubated, to the MICU. Now, let, me, let me ask you there, uh, Gloria, would you give this patient uh, heparin and this patient who just has a pretty significant hematoma? That's a great question. And, and I think, you know, I think we would just have to look into the hemodynamic parameters, how he does after the stenting and, you know, wait a little bit and make sure that he's um, monitoring the ICU and then maybe started uh, right away. I mean, I'm, I know this situation is difficult because you have a stent now and you really want to make sure it's, um, it remains patent, obviously. So It's always a challenge, you know, situations like this, you know, do you heparinize, do you not? Um, Zivia, what was your... It's, it's ironic that you say it because this was sort of Solomon cutting the baby in half. The vascular surgeon wanted twice as much heparin. I wanted zero. We settled on four. So real medical decision-making yes. as a team. <laughs> yeah. So he gets back to the ICU at 2.47 a.m. He's seen by the fellow for confusion and a poor pulse oximeter reading, so to saturation. And then he has a pulseless electrical activity PA arrest ventricular fibrillation, wide complex tachycardia. He's coded and resuscitated for 40 minutes, and then he dies. So what happened? Anybody want to take a guess or call out something? Basilar artery thrombosis. Great idea. Other? Stroke. Stroke. Okay, so leaning toward the head, right? Okay. See some nodding out there as well. Here's the debrief. 1.40 p.m., there's his hemoglobin, 9.4, hematocrit of 28. Tunnel vision. That's what I want to talk about. Um, lack of constant suspicion and situational awareness. Thinking about the highest level of danger at every point. And you can see that in the other cases that we talked about with critically ill, bleeding to death patients, vasoconstricted, hypotensive. 
You're focused on that. There's resuscitation happening, but we're also talking about what's going to happen next with this DIC and other support requirements during or after the procedure in these kinds of embolizations. At 2.46 a.m. in the ICU, as you can see, his hemoglobin is 4.8. Remember the timing of what I showed you. So there are different types of error. There's the active failure, which is you do something unsafe or you hold back on something. There's what's called a description error, where you're just flying the plane on autopilot, where data's coming in and you keep on going. And there's errors of intention. There are rules, there are things we're supposed to do, but you're in that tunnel. I gotta get there, I'm getting there, I'm coiling, I'm doing, I'm something, etc. So we performed a timeout per protocol. We looked at the patient's labs per protocol. We have a big sheet that's filled out for every patient, and we have a wipe-off board where labs are written out. We did not review the time of the last hemoglobin. That hemoglobin was nine hours old, and remarkably, in a MICU, he had not had a hemoglobin drawn for nine hours in a bleeding patient. So that was one. And the second one is that we didn't check the time of it. And I can't think of um, a routine in which I always say exactly when was that drawn. And had that hemoglobin been stated at the time of timeout and was something lower than 9.4, and it presumably was because he had that hematoma, then we would have been doing something. We would have accelerated plans, changed plans. I would have been transfusing. Um, the other mistake was that he had an, a, a, a change in status during the case. And that was not broadcast because we're in our procedure focused on the difficulties, and the nurse is talking to a remote physician who is prescribing pressors. She's not in her normal element with drugs, being able to look out from a room and see doctors behind a countertop and say, hey, you know, what, something, whatever, which is their comfort space, but she's operating as if it's in that space and talking to them, and they're not seeing it. The remote physician has limited perspective. The hemorrhage was being managed with pressors, not volume. How many of you have seen differences between how hemorrhage is managed in a medical intensive care unit or in a surgical intensive care unit? And I see people nodding. Pressors for bleeding? No, it's volume. We know that trauma and surgery manage it differently. And this is sort of a, just an acceptable dichotomy that I think is something to be aware of as well. Can I just say something? Thank you for showing this case. I think the other part of it, and I agree with everything was said, but you at least, as a team, had to make five or ten decisions before you bring this patient in terms of the technical aspect, what to do, bringing other colleagues. And I think that also contributes significantly for the not looking at the labs or, or not recognizing that the patient was not being transfused. And it's just too many critical decisions you're making before you even bring the patient. So... so um Yes, I, I do need to think about that more, about whether, about, um, uh, I'm not sure what I would do differently other than that HeGlo. You're right. I'm st there, there's no doubt that I'm still blind on one other aspect, but I'll take that as a point to say that when we brought the surgery team in, then with them arrives anesthesiologists, trays, OR techs, equipment, suction, lots of things to get open, big equipment there in the IR suite, lots of room for it. But at that point, there was also, later on, some unclarity for the anesthesiologist as to whether they're now driving the case. Because they show up and I'm saying, you want to intubate? You can intubate. I'm going to focus on this with my 
um, colleague in vascular surgery, you can manage this. They did not clearly understand that they were now controlling it, even though there were anesthesia attendings and there's uh, an anesthesia fellow just across from me on the other side, the image intensifier. So there's still an aspect, even in the room, with all those people as to, you know, who's, who's flying. Exactly, like who's the leader, the leader with one aspect of that versus another. And the kind of example that maybe from the early days of TIPS, hopefully you don't see this now, is that you bring the patient down, they're bleeding, I can get that TIPS in quickly, you're doing the case, and you're focusing on it's taking longer for whatever reason, and then suddenly the patient codes because they have been gradually bleeding to death during the procedure where we're tunnel-visioned. So, I mean, there's, there are echoes to this kind of thing in a lot of things that we do. So, we did a root cause analysis. And we came out with guidelines, which is all bleeding patients, timeout includes the time of the hemoglobin. We think about whether those specific labs need to be repeated specifically for that, rather than just automatically ordering new labs on every single patient, the outpatient who had it a week ago. Um, we now have our second call IR nurses at a low threshold to be called in to support MICU. This was a policy change. Um, we have rules that work for the ICU in terms of change in status patient status. I wrote these. Initiation of new classes of medications like pressors or respiratory change means a call for a physician from the medical team to arrive and be there. I used this just yesterday on a septic patient needing a nephrostomy at night where I insisted the physician had to stay in the room with them. And then we have very direct lines of communications without phone to phone from physician to nurse rather than him or her calling up and finding the doctor or otherwise. So, um, you know, you think you run a tight ship, and then one leak in the boat really sinks. This, this is how we discovered the link. And I, I, I hope that I've shared something that might resonate for you. And I show you this video over here, which is, you know, why do skydivers with more than 2,500 patients die? Yeah, that's me. So this is, uh, this is two years doing a recurrency jump. I hadn't been out, so I got with a coach. We'd agreed on some very simple maneuvers, and I'm signed off again. I've done 140 jumps. And what I'll show you over here is, so this is the wave off, and then you fly off at speed, and you wa watch my hand go down. One, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, four, one thousand, five, one thousand, six, one thousand. That's about 1,500 feet. That's a major malfunction, actually. That's my reserve parachute. So for six seconds, the rigger who had re-rigged it before this for me, because it had been out for a while, had misrouted a line that I didn't catch, and I now know the color of my reserve parachute. It's orange, and it has seven cells, not nine. Now, I had trained for this that morning in this particular malfunction, which means when I landed, I was angry at the guy. I wasn't scared, I wasn't nervous, but um, had I not trained for this unusual malfunction, which is called a bag lock, then loss of situational awareness. And maybe that's the message I wanted to share with the case. It's a great, great case, great, great learning points. So in that situation, I would be shaking like this, and I would be under. <laughs> I wouldn't even walk at being able even to talk. So anyway, um, it's a, a little bit complementary case because I think it's uh, also addressing the uh, the fact that a lot of time in the discussion with the acute bleeding situation, at the time we are informed, the patient is already sinking, and that's a really big problem. And I think uh, this is another example of this. So 
Uh, it's very interesting to know that we actually, um, these are my disclosure. This is one of, actually this, today now, one of our biggest problem is bleeding post paracentesis. There has been a lot of shift in the hospital where uh, the uh, CAP team now wants to do the parod and uh, there has been a lot of problem. We had to do a lot of uh, control with the, uh, with the um, um, safety and discuss, uh, trained again, come back, and so we stopped uh, the PAC team from doing paracentesis for a couple of months until they are good again and they came back and then they started again. So it's a story of a patient, uh, a um, portal hypertensive gastropathic patient, uh, alcoholic uh, cirrhosis who uh, has been admitted for uh, encephalopathy. Um, they took care of everything. The, the hemoglobin has been always low, so the patient was receiving uh, um, perfusion, uh, transfusion every, every day, one unit. Patient did well, went home, and two days later came back with um, a lot of uh, issues, uh, and um, the patient became again encephalopathic, and they, the, at the uh, uh, ICU, uh, at the uh, emergency room, they asked for a diagnostic para, and um, and the patient was referred uh, to CAP team. And I put the note of the CAP team because, because of all the trauma they, they went through, they actually now look at the ultrasound, they put the, uh, the color Doppler, they, they make sure that the area they are going there is not a big vessel. I actually don't know even if I can see any big vessel with color Doppler in those situations. But anyway, this is not a criti criticism of the CAP team. It's this, the fact that these problems happen, especially in coagulopathic patients. And so uh, this patient was, uh, as you see, on 11-9, um, getting the paras. They say that this patient has a peritoneal infection, and the uh, patient was admitted, uh, managed, and the patient on 11-13, they realized the patient has p abdominal pain and bruising in the abdomen. They draw the INR, continues, the INR continues to be very high, 5.6. They can't control the INR, and they ask for um, another perfusion, uh, transfusion and send the patient to CTA. Jafar, can I stop, stop right there? Uh, in term, so this paracentesis was done with an INR of 5. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gloria, do you have a specific uh, protocol in your hospital <clears throat> for at which point you need to correct your INR for paracentesis? Yeah, we, we do have a protocol, but I have my own thoughts on that. So I basically don't do it. I try to correct the, 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 uh, the INR before that. I think five is, is too high, and if you hit an artery, then you're, you're done, unless you know, there's no other way of, of, of doing it. But usually we do it at uh, three, 2.5. How about you, Ziv? You have, we, you have a protocol? Um, I published a paper um, from the Southwest on, on hundreds of paracentesis in which this group had looked at INRs that were beyond the 1.5, which if you go look back at the origin of the 1.5, it's actually some ancient anesthesia paper that had suggested this. And we all kind of repeat this uh, as another form of dogma. And um, they had certainly less than five, but they were up to three not worried or concerned. I think everybody thinks five is a big number, and I agree. Yeah, you know, if you look at the updated SIR coagulation uh, parameters, 
you know, paracentesis is considered a low-risk procedure, and you know, whether you agree with those guidelines or not, they say up to an INR of three is okay. So we've actually adopted those guidelines. So we, uh, we were losing a lot of time checking the, uh, the INR and platelets, and we went and we did an extensive uh, evaluation of the literature, including the SIR guidelines at that time. That was about five years ago. And the decision came out that we don't look at INR. Platelets, the only thing we will look, and if it is below 25,000, then we start to give platelets. Because this patient, you can give tons of fluid and tons of FFP. They, you will not change their, uh, their INR very often. So the decision ac across the system in the hospital was not to look at the INR. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely that's, controversial. That's, and we've looked at that data, a, and it's yeah, all over the place. All over right. the place. So the CTA showed the extravasation, as you can see it there. And so between the time that this CTA was done and the time that the patient came down to IR, um, it took um, a lot of time. I think it was at least uh, four or five hours. They started to check the uh, hemoglobin, the blood, uh, the, um, the blood pressure dropped uh, to 80. So they started to fill the patient with plasma, fibrinogen. Uh, IR was contacted. By the time we asked the patient to come down, and uh, they, they, they were going to place the art line and try to uh, stabilize the patient. The patient come, came down to IR around 10 p.m., probably seven, eight hours after the CTA. So. We, um, based on the CTA, it was difficult to see what artery was bleeding, so um, we, um, we went directly to the uh, um, inferior epigastric, couldn't find, came back and did a power injection, couldn't uh, see the bleeder, went to the uh, um, circumflex artery. Um, we, we were seeing something up there, not sure. Uh, sorry. Oop, what did I do here? So uh, we said maybe that's a, a bleeder. We couldn't, uh, but when we did other projections, we couldn't find the bleeder. Came back again to uh, another injection here, uh, another injection on the um, inferior epigastric, and uh, still couldn't really see the bleeder. Um, and then we have this next service room where we have CT and angio combination. So. Uh, the patient was very stable on the table. I said, let's do a CTA and just to make sure that the patient actually is bleeding. And this CTA showed really um, massive bleeding. Again, why I was not seeing that massive bleeding with my selective angiogram. So, um, so we decided to go ahead and uh, do uh, another uh, try. So we catheterized the... Uh, um, uh, Profonda and all the other arteries to make sure there's nothing going up from there, and went back again to um, to uh, inferior epigastric, and inject a little bit um, more powerful and uh, stayed a little bit longer, and then we started to opacify a bleeder there, and so um, now at this point um, we're very happy. Started to selectively catheterize the artery. As you see, we are getting uh, close to that collateralization. And um, at that time, based on previous experience where we did the embolization super selectively and the patient still rebleed, we decided that we will do a combination of uh, particles, coils, particles, coils, particles, coils. And so that's what we did. Uh, we started to go as far as we could. Um, and 
started with the particle, you see the uh, effect of uh, particle embolization and delayed images, and started to pull back. What size, so, par- what, what, what size particles do you favor? I, well, you know, in this situation, because uh, you, you are really in a small vessel, I use 100 to 300 micro. And so small coils pull back, again, uh, particles, coils again, packing coils all the way down until that small collateral that you can see up there. And so we basically embolize it to, um, to the area that we say, well, we felt, we felt that's safe. We did another angiogram, didn't see the extravasation. We were very happy, sent the patient back. Patient was stable, improving basic parameters, and then two days later, started to have abdominal pain, hemoglobin trending down, but not really fast. They did another CTA, and CTA again confirmed a bleeder in almost the exact same area. And um, so, so at that point, you know, what were you thinking? Uh, were you able to trace anything out? Are you thinking about doing a non-selective angiogram? No, no, I just say that we need to go back and try because one thing is very important, and I, we always take the pride of being, uh, having surgery, uh, sur- they call it surgical precision in terms of when they do bombing. <laughs> we think that we are going, we are very proud of going and super selectively close the artery. But the message here, and really, and you can, you don't find that very often in the literature because um, really super selective embolization in those situations is not the only answer. You have to destroy that area with extensive embolization. And so I knew that this is a re-bleed from a collateral that I missed. So we went back, and so this is, uh, injection here didn't so show the extravasation. Super selective injection, again, of the other branch, uh, the circumflex, went back here, inject, injected here, and that was one of my uh, colleagues who did that and didn't see the bleed there. And finally, with forceful injection, you start to see this. So uh, when you see that, actually, you see that collateral that I didn't embolize? Just below the, this, this collateral actually started to take over and uh, um, get the blood going to... Uh, to the area extravasation, and that developed over, over uh, two days. So probably there was this collateral already at the beginning, but it was when we did the injection, we didn't uh, find it. Was, and that, so, was that the same site? Same site, yeah. And so what we had to do here is just coil pack that collateral and bring it down to the origin of the uh, uh, so there's a nice theme here for the importance of coagulopathy, which is one of the first points on your slide that opened, which is we're embolizing not for the immediate picture, but for what's also going to occur beyond and what those patients' continuing risks are. And indeed, for recurrent bleeding after upper GI embolization, it's coagulopathy that's the, the strongest risk factor. I will say that I've switched completely, and I make the disclosure that all the liquids are off-label, but I've switched completely to using liquids in, in these specifically because you can cast them out, having been burnt by this exact situation. We've that's also, ex- we've that's also, an excellent point, actually. It's amazing because now each time we go there, the first comment is, should we start to use liquid? In, in, uh, in the uh, coagulopathic patients, especially in that rich area of uh, vascularization like um, abdominal wall. 
What well, we've also seen in situations like this, more commonly, you know, you commonly see it, you know, you have a, you know, a bad hepatic bleed where you have a, an initial bleed and now you have tearing of the capsule and you get, you know, now you get multiple sites of bleeding. And we've also seen that, that was a pretty large, you know, hematoma down there, although it happened to be the same site of bleeding. We've also seen that, you know, from a paracentesis as well, where it tore other arteries as the hematoma got so large. And the other... Uh, and the other thing is that no matter what we use, you have to pack all the way down to the origin of um, inferior epigastric. I think that's extremely important. And putting a plug at that end is a really something I like a lot, and I think that that's, is going to become our standard of care. So anyways, estrogenic bleeding post can be difficult to manage, and it, they are life-threatening. Actually, this patient, for the same uh, reason that uh, um, we had for Dr. Haskell's case, uh, passed away two days later because of the uh, uh, hemato, uh, uh, hemodynamic instability. Early intervention is extremely important if CTA is positive. You should not lose time to take the patient down as soon as possible to angiosuite. Angiogram is not always obvious to show the, the bleeder. You have to wait on delayed phase. Actually, when I went back and looked at my first injection, in the uh, inferior epigastric, you see really very uh, small extravasation at the end, but now it's easier to say, uh, I am happy that I had that CT because I, at some point I say, uh, this patient is not bleeding anymore. Uh, there is a rich collateral pathway. I think extensive embolization in those situations, using a combination treatment and uh, using liquid is uh, really the way to go. Thank you for your attention. Given the sake of time, I'm going to go through this last case very quickly uh, because I think it does have some important points. I'm not going to have too much point for discussion, but it is uh, something that you could definitely learn from. So this is a 74-year-old patient who had a splenic hematoma status post-colonoscopy. And the reason this actually happens after we looked it up is actually when you pull down, when sometimes when the endoscopists have a hard time getting around the splenic flexure. They actually pull down on the colon there, and it pulls on the splenocolic ligament. And if you pull down on it significantly, it can actually cause hemorrhage. So this is a patient who was bleeding. You know, you can see the hematoma here. Um, and we initially, you know, observed this patient. And as the patient was hemodynamically stable, and the hematoma was getting worse. And the patient was gradually dropping their hemoglobin every day. So we decided in this patient that we would do a prophylactic proximal splenic artery embolization. So, you know, given the limited time at this point, I'm just going to kind of walk through these slides. Otherwise, you know, we would, you know, talk about, you know, these in a little bit more detail. But basically decided, you know, we're likely not going to find a source. There was no positive, you know, bleed on the CTA. But clearly, given this continuing decline in the patient's hemoglobin, that we would go ahead and proceed with the proximal artery, proximal splenic artery embolization. So here's patient's angiogram here and made a decision that, you know, again, no extra, you know, nothing unexpected here. So we decided that we would place uh, a plug in this. This was a few years ago before we had some of the newer, you know, smaller Amplatzer plugs or the microvascular plugs. So we were u utilizing the older Amplatzer plug, which actually required, um, you know, a large guide catheter or sheath to introduce it into this vessel which was about 6.2 millimeters. So decided that we'll utilize an Amplatzer um, a plug here. So here in this case, utilized a destination sheath into the celiac axis. 
and a, uh, a guide catheter was placed. Now, I want you to notice that this guide catheter is sitting right up against that vessel. Working, um, so again, decision was made to place an eight millimeter amp platzer plugs, and as soon as that this, as soon as this plug was advanced, the patient was complaining of significant pain. I mean, the woman was uh, literally screaming, and we had this. So, so, so why did this happen? Well, you know, as as you know, you know, this catheter was sitting right at the edge of the vessel. These plugs are meant to be unsheathed, not pushed into the vessel. If you've ever actually taken one of these things and felt the end of it, it's, it's a relatively sharp. The smaller, you know, Amplaster 4s are, are definitely much softer and more benign. But, you know, this, that's what was done in this case. You know, it was one of those situations where that technique was not followed and this patient had extrav. So what do you do in a situation like this? Well, you know, I, I normally don't have a sheath in the celiac axis. You know, I, I was actually very happy at this point that I actually had the sheath. So, you know, I got, got the patient blood. You know, I called a surgeon. I just started, you know, I put a microcatheter, and I just started throwing in as many coils as I can as quickly as I could. You know, just, you know, throw, give me every coil you could give me, and I'm just shooting them in, you know, just pushable coils as fast as I could. And, and the goal, I knew that I wasn't going to get the back door here, but I was like, if I could get the front door, and then maybe we could stabilize the patient, maybe for a splenectomy if the patient's still bleeding. However, you know, despite this, the patient is still bleeding through all these coils. You know, no matter what I'm doing, the patient's bleeding. And I think the patient's coagulopathic at this point in time. So given that I had this uh, sheath in place, I ended up placing a balloon proximally. I was able to do an angiogram, luckily, because I had the sheath in place there. And now I knew that I had control of the vessel. And, and then this patient went to the OR, and I, I sat there. I walked the patient in the OR. I wasn't going to let go of this balloon until this patient was stabilized. They prepped around me because I wasn't going to let go of this balloon. Um, and basically, the surgeon, thank God I was there, surgeon takes out the spleen. He said, oh, you could let down the balloon. I'm like, no, no you're not understanding the situation here. <laughs> the spleen isn't the problem. It's the splenic artery. He said, oh, I, I didn't realize that. At that point, I was really thankful that I was there. So anyway, we got one of our vascular surgeons in. You know, he was able to cut down, uh, you know, to that site and uh, ligate the artery. <clears throat> patient was in the hospital for some time. He luckily, ended up doing well. But anyway, key things are obviously angles can be challenging. And with some, some of these devices, you know, I mean, the IFU is very clear. The IFU wasn't followed. You want to unsheath these. Don't push them into the artery. I want to thank, uh, thank the panel. I think this was a great discussion. If, I know, given the limited time, if anybody has any questions, you could come and speak to us individually afterwards. And, um, you know, I think the general session for ISAT is going to be starting very soon. Thank you very much.